Well, y'all have to forgive me. I'm a creature of habit, and so I, I didn't wasn't real sure how the format would be for this. I know Brother Steve told me that it, you know, could be five, could be ten. Just wasn't real sure where we'd be on it. So I, uh, I write all my sermons out. So I wrote this out. Uh, one one of the main reasons I do that is to make sure that I time my sermons right because I average about five minutes a page. So I, uh, I figure, hey, I can. I can know how much time I'm going to waste with you if I um, if, if I uh, write it out. But I wanted to thank Brother Steve for being here uh, for asking me to be here today. Uh, Brother Steve, like he already mentioned, I got to know him uh, when I was at Friendship, and like I said, I live in Greenville. It was about an hour drive for Brother Steve to come over and have lunch with me, but he made sure he was going to do that. I don't know what, maybe once a quarter or something like that. And every once in a while, he'd bring. Uh, uh, a pastor over from the association so that I could stay connected with the association and I've I've told people I told more than one person this uh, as we've been talking about in our association looking for a director of missions uh, so well I know a guy that's a picture <laughs> of what a DOM should be and and uh, of course Dean McCoy amen that yeah, when I was yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, when he was in the that's meeting I was a pastor for so long <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, so I I, I appreciate Brother Steve's friendship and and uh, the way that he made me feel connected and he's the reason I'm here today and uh, we had talked about my book and the name of the book is the worship of the Triune God it's available on Amazon uh, and I can I can get it uh, like I've got these for a discounted rate and so uh, if you guys this is just a bit of housekeeping if you decide hey I've read the book or I heard your speech and I I like the idea and I want to do it with a men's group or I want to do it with a youth group or whatever it might be. I can, the publisher can get it at a discounted rate if you want to buy it in bulk. So, you know, don't look at the price on Amazon and think, oh man, that's, uh, that's way too much for a Bible study. So, um, I think it's like 16 bucks on, on Amazon, but the, um, but with that out of the way, I, I just wanted to, uh, brother Steve asked me to kind of come and explain what the motivations are behind the book, what the point is. And so I want to kind of give just a general introduction and an overview of how I came to write the book and, and uh, what the main, uh, the core points of it are. Um, you know, I, I, I've had several people ask, how are you a bivocational uh, Baptist minister in a rural country church in South Alabama? How is it that you came to write a book? Well, as Brother Steve's already alluded I've had the concern for worship, and particularly since the pandemic, uh, a concern for worship. And so when I began my ministry at Antioch West, I decided to preach a series, which ended up being about a year-long series, on defining worship. And I originally started out thinking that's going to be a six-week series. I'll work through that real quick. And then as I got to planning out the sermons, I, I like to kind of schedule out where my sermons are going to be during the year and uh, as I got to doing that, I said, well, I need to go here, too, and I need to go there. And then and by the time I was done, and because of the because I write my sermons out, I basically had the core, uh, cons, uh, core text of the book already done. And I knew, uh, I happened to know by God's providence, I happened to know a publisher uh, through several different connections and and uh, so I reached out to him. I knew he was looking for concepts, and so I reached out and talked to him about it, and he said, yeah, send me the manuscript, and so we did that, and about two years later, uh, we published the book back in in uh, March of this year, and 
I've had several people ask me, you know, where did you come up with the idea? Where where did that come from? And I think, you know, y'all may have heard this said before, but I heard a an old preacher say one time when he was asked, he said it every time he was asked, uh, how long or how long did you study for the sermon that you preached this Sunday? And the preacher would always answer, my whole life. You know, and uh, I know that you guys feel that way about your sermon every Sunday. It's not just about the content you studied for over the last week. It, it involves things from your whole life that inform what you preach on Sunday. And, and I would say that that's very much the same way with my book, that, that it's not just that I decided three or four years ago to start writing on this subject, but, you know, for since I was eight years old, for 34 years of my Christian life, I've, I've really dealt with three pursuits. I've had three pursuits in my life that have been the core concerns of my Christian life. And one is theological, the other is philosophical, and the last one is doxological. So uh, to start with, I've, I'll just say I'm, I'm somewhat of a theology nerd. Like I, I, I have taken seminary classes, I've gone, I've never gotten a seminary degree uh, in spite of my efforts to do so, about 10 years of efforts to do so, just time and and money and all of that kind of stuff uh, prohibited me from doing it. But my father was chairman of the deacons at First Baptist Church back when I was a teenager or a young adult, uh, adolescent and teenager. And uh, he later, as Brother Steve has already said, he later went on to accept the call to ministry, and he's a bivocational pastor in the same county I'm in uh, now. But uh, he served as a leader at First Baptist of Greenville back during the a, a pivotal time in the Southern Baptist Convention. And it's a time that we now call the conservative resurgence. And uh, First Baptist, in its own little way, had a, had a part to play in that situation. And because of that, my, my family dinners involved discussions of inerrancy <laughs> and, uh, and the deity of Christ and the reality of miracles and all that. And so I, it's because of that influence of my father that I grew to have a deep love for deep things and not only that but in my teenage years around my sophomore year I started to become interested in a Presbyterian girl who would later become my wife and uh, you can imagine you're you're laughing because you can imagine that our early arguments were not just aggravations over young love but over the doctrine of election and the order of salvation so um, this love that I had led to me reading systematic theologies and and uh, I read them like they were crime novels, you know, just got in, into them. But one thing that I noticed that it started to bother me as I read and went through seminary classes and all that is that there was a disturbing thing that developed in my own heart. And while I loved the reading, I found that the scholars that I was were, was reading were dry and loveless in a lot of their uh, expositions and explorations of some of the deepest mysteries of the universe, right? And so uh, they could plumb the depths of, of language and explain complicated aspects of God's nature, and yet it seemed that they could do all that without any sense of wonder, you know. And so beyond that, there was always, as I studied, there was always question excuse me, lunch, Uh, (laughs) there was always a question that kept looming over all this theology, and that is a question that every eighth grader or eight-year-old Sunday school student asks, and that is, 
but why? Right? Why would a sovereign God create a universe in which evil was possible? Why would uh, this same sovereign and all-knowing God put a tree in the middle of the garden and then command His image bearers not to eat it? You know, why would, why would Jesus be the only way? Now, of course, theologians have answers for that, and they all provided the answers for that. But to me, a lot of times those answers seemed lacking in some way. And so alongside of that theological pursuit, I also wrestled with a philosophical pursuit, specifically what is the meaning of life. And there, there was a personal and a pastoral dimension to that. Personally, as we've already been talking about some bivocational pastors in this association, uh, I, I wrestled with my calling for like 20 years. And I wrestled with it because uh, I felt like I was called to the ministry at 17, but I have never served full-time in a, in a church setting. I've served in ministry since I was 19, but I've never been a full-time pastor. And if you're bivocational or you've ever served as a bivocational, maybe uh, you've experienced that same conflict of callings. You know, that uh, am I to be a software engineer or am I to be a pastor? Which profession is more glorifying to God? And pastorally, I had to stare this, and I know you guys have done this too, you have to stare this question in the face every time you officiate a funeral or when I had to answer the, the confusion of a man who had lost his foot because of diabetes and was wrestling with his usefulness in the church and in the world. Uh, what do the lives of our members mean? What is their purpose? Uh, so often pastors tend to form the meaningfulness of their members in terms of what they produce. You know, how many souls have they won? Uh, what classes have they taught? What offices have they held? Um, but what about the quiet single man who lived alone his whole life and could hardly mutter a word in a crowd? Or for better yet, what about the adult who has Down syndrome? What is their purpose in terms of what they produce? And then these two pursuits, the theological and the philosophical, led me to a final pursuit, and that is the question of doxology or the question of worship. So I learned to play guitar, as Brother Steve already mentioned, I learned to play guitar when I was 17, mainly so I could win over that Presbyterian girl that later became my wife. And I will say it wasn't because of my musical talents that she, she ended up deciding to marry me. But um, that skill led me to lead youth group. It led me to lead college ministry. Uh, it, I played at a big church in Auburn when I was going to school in Auburn. Uh, I used it as a youth minister and even, as, as Brother Steve said, as a pastor. So I've, I've been through all the phases of the worship wars. You know, I grew up in a very traditional church. I have played praise and worship music in college. I've served in churches with blended services, with Southern gospel music, with traditional hymns. And all of those different movements, whether it's the seeker-sensitive movement or the traditional movement or whatever it might be, they all give one reason or another as to why Christian worship should be done. You know, some people say, well, uh, if you think about this seeker-sensitive movement, they say, well, it's an evangelistic effort. You know, the whole, you, should, you should organize your whole service around the, the seeker. You know, you think about the traditionalists, they're maintaining 
a, a code, maintaining a tradition. You think about all the, you, some people uh, like Andy Stanley would use it as a, as a discipleship method. So worship has, uh, according to these different groups, has different reasons for doing it. Uh, but, but to me, that doesn't really answer the question of why. So the question of why we worship was amplified. I know all of you experienced this too. It was amplified for me to a shrieking level in March of 2020 when Governor Ivey originally suggested and then demanded that churches shut down for two weeks and it ended up being, what, six weeks or something like that. And we missed Easter and all of that. Well, that, uh, that sent a lot of churches scrambling to try to stay connected. You know, some churches like even friendship, we tried to figure out. We're out in the middle of nowhere. Well, how do we do, uh, you know, broadcasts or, or, or live streams or whatever? And um, it, a lot of churches tried to make what what we've come to term virtual worship as meaningful as in person. Some have done the uh, did the whole uh, you know parking lot worship. Others did divided their congregation up and had different meetings for different groups, but. Uh, it was obvious from the start of the pandemic uh, that this would be detrimental to church meetings and or to, to church worship. And I think that's proven out over the years, unfortunately. But you'll remember that there was a popular demarcation when all that went down. There was a question over every activity that we had. And that was, was it essential? Or was it, what, non-essential, right? Well, where does Sunday morning worship fall on that scale? Is it essential? Is it non-essential? What about discipleship? What about evangelism? Are these things essential or non-essential? Or are they something else? So what is the answer to the question of why? So in theology, what is the, most, uh, what is the ultimate motivation for all that God does? Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved images. So we find throughout Scripture that God is ultimately motivated by His glory. He created us to be His image bearers because He desired for us to send His glory out into the world. Um, he He saved us for His glory and He gives us His Spirit for his glory. So like as in Psalm 23 verse 3 it says he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Um, so what is the meaning of life? Uh, I think the first question of the short oh, excuse me <clears throat> of the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith I think it sums up pretty well what scripture says about this. Thank you. And the the Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We are made to glorify God. God has saved us so that we might glorify Him. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 uh, talks about how God has chosen us, He's redeemed us, and He's sealed us by His Spirit. And He does all of that. And there's a common phrase that Paul uses in that passage He says He does all of it for the praise of His glory. So God does all of that um, for His glory, and our lives 
are defined, our meaning in life is defined by worship. So all of our lives is an act of worship to God. As, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship, right? So this means that everything we do from the smallest thing to the greatest is an act of worship. So working well with your hands is an act of worship. Raising your family is an act of worship. Treating your spouse well and loving your spouse well is an act of worship. Faithfully meeting with your brothers and sisters brings glory to God and is an act of worship. So the last question is, why, why do we meet to worship? And what I've come to understand and is the main thrust of the book is that we do not meet as an evangelistic effort or as a method of discipleship. And one of the first catchphrases, I guess you could say, of the book is uh, worship is not a means to an end. Worship is the end. Uh, We are called to faithfully meet Sunday after Sunday because in doing so, we order our lives around the glory of God and we testify to the world that there is something greater than our jobs, something greater than travel ball, something greater than sleeping late, and even chilling and watching Netflix. God's glory is greater than the most important thing that we have on our calendar. It is greater and more important than any of that. And our worship testifies to that as we wait for the day that His His glory will extend into all the earth. So these pursuits, these three pursuits, kind of form the foundation of the book. And the book is organized around seven questions. Uh, and, and there's basically about two, two chapters per question. Uh, the questions are, who do we worship? Why do we worship? What is worship? When and where do we worship? How do we worship? And what is the end of worship? Or where is worship going? Where is it taking us? So, uh, as the subtitle of the book suggests, the, the ultimate aim of the book is to show that the whole of the Christian life is an act of worship. Not just what we do on Sunday morning, not just our Bible reading and prayer time, but all of the Christian life is an act of worship. And so I hope if if you get a chance, I'd love for you to read it. I'd be honored that you read it. I'd be honored if you used it uh, for a Bible study. uh, And I hope that it blesses you and and that you uh, gain something from it if you get the chance to read it. So that's the core of the book. So.